You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris. And my name is Stephanie. In this episode, we are discussing episode six of Orphan Black, the next chapter, which is titled Every Child is Cast from Paradise. We will discuss everything that happened in that episode, but there shouldn't be any spoilers for future episodes. I feel like we should also give a content warning for this episode. In the first section of the episode, we discuss Delphine's storyline for this particular episode of Orphan Black, the next chapter, in which Delphine discusses some very upsetting, unethical, and cruel practices from the history of science, medical science. And we do also talk about some other instances that are similar. So just as a warning, that could be upsetting for some people. And pandemic disclaimer, we are recording this in June 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic is still a thing and we are still a mess. Also, apologies if you hear construction sounds on my audio because there is a thing happening behind my house. So this title reference this week is kind of from a book within a book, right, Chris? This is correct. As we've mentioned previously, the titles for this season of Orphan Black, the next chapter are taken from Octavia E. Butler's The Parable of the Sower and The Parable of the Talents. In those books, there is sort of the religious text, the Book of the Living. And so this is taken from the Book of the Living. It's verse 49, Paradise. The child in each of us knows paradise. Paradise is home, home as it was or home as it should have been. Paradise is one's own place, one's own people, one's own world, knowing and known, perhaps even loving and loved. Yet every child is cast from paradise, into growth and destruction, into solitude and new community, into vast, ongoing change. This verse, in the context of this episode, is really making me think about Charlotte and Vivi, because I felt like when... Vivi was looking at all the pictures of the different Lita clones in Cosima and Delphine's house. You got a real sense of the loneliness she felt and kind of like missed opportunities and isolation. And I think you got something similar from Charlotte as she was thinking about how her isolation when she was growing up was so different from the way that the Gemini population grew up together. And I think it's one of those things for Vivi, especially, like the fact that she had interaction with the other clones and then was essentially convinced that it didn't happen sort of makes it all that much more poignant, too. And the fact that, you know, Charlotte's even part of Clone Club in a way, but also removed from them. Like, she's not part of the Lita clones. It's it's all rather sad. Yeah. I felt really a lot of sympathy for both of them in this episode. Good job, writers. I know this is going to shock you, Chris, but I have a lot of feelings about the Delphine storyline in this episode. You, you don't say. I do. It's true. Something new and different from me. I know. <laughs> I just, I randomly get messages from you that are like, Delphine! Or, or, Delphine's so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is. <laughs> she is very pretty. <laughs> that is, by the way, a quote from about 20 minutes ago in conversation <laughs> with Stephanie. <laughs> oh, calling me out. Oh, 
They all know if they're listening to this and they've been listening to us, they know. I was looking at pictures from across the seasons recently because I'm having to put together website posts again while we're doing this podcast. And I was noticing like how Delphine's hair changes over the seasons. And like I have thoughts about character <laughs> through hair with Delphine. I have a problem. I have a is Delphine this, Cormier problem. Is this going to be an upcoming episode that I maybe am just now finding out about? <laughs> maybe. I hope you have thoughts about hair. <laughs> uh, not as many as you, apparently. So Delphine in this episode, I I guess they didn't, for me at least, give great context for this speech that she's giving. I assume this is her following up on what she said she was going to do to clone club she will not do to clone club she said to clone club that she was going to suggest that they not leave the biometric security measures that have been implemented at the borders and at the airports in place so i'm I'm guessing that's what this is is her saying we shouldn't leave these security measures in place is that what we're supposed to get from her giving this speech that is certainly the impression that i got yes that okay it's it's in response to that and also like I mean, I think she even says to them, like, is this not why you have me here? <laughs> right. Well, and I think part of the reason I was maybe a little confused was that there's also mention when she's kind of looking around the room, she spots some guy and mentions that, oh, that's the person in charge of the micro drones that collect ambient DNA left around the city on like gums and cups and things. And like, what? You know, what are they doing with that DNA? But yeah, I don't think that's what this talk was about. It's It's got to be about the security measures at the airports and things. I mean, I would assume. But also, this is neither here nor there. But can can you believe how much information we got about Delphine's underwear in this episode? Oh, my God. I got so embarrassed, Chris. I, I was got listening so at work and I was like, what is happening? <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I got so embarrassed while I was listening to this episode. I also got embarrassed when I was listening to a previous episode and they were like smooching in the hammock. I didn't talk about it because I was going to turn red in and I'm turning red now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't tend to like get that embarrassed with like their smoochy scenes on the TV show. But for some reason, like hearing Tatiana Maslany reading these descriptions, I get very uncomfortable. <laughs> Because, like, that's that's a character she played. Like, it's it's just, it's all a little, like, meta in my head, and it gets weird. <laughs> and yes, we know a lot about Delphine's underwear now, which I'm not sure how I feel about. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm flustered. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just didn't want it to go uncommented on. I mean, they just talk about it so much. <laughs> it's a very big chunk of the first section of the the episode delphine's underwear and being called common ha! lady at the shop <laughs> stephanie's personally offended offended on delphine's behalf there were a lot of like attractive lady things happening in this episode i had a lot there was it was very emotional for me Sarah was threatening people, and Delphine had space-age underwear, and... Oh. And now we're learning a lot about Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah threatening people does it for you, eh? It was just so very Sarah. It made me, ha it made me so happy. Like, 
She's holding a beer bottle to somebody's neck. She's back. This is great. (laughs) I am loving this right now. But to get back to my petit chou, we've got... (laughs) Sorry to derail. We've got Delphine giving this this talk about ethics to this this group of people and and now i have to apologize if there's any noise on my end my upstairs neighbors are just the loudest people i have ever lived underneath ever no their hobbies seem to be jumping and hammering and drumming that seems to be the only things that they do so i apologize if, if there's a lot of thuds wow so uh, Delphine gives this really beautiful talk about ethics in science, and it was really an emotional thing for me. I took a bioethics class last year, partially so I could better flirt with Delphine Cormier, as Chris wanted to point out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anything. Uh... Not the only reason. I needed an elective, and it sounded interesting, okay? <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And it was really interesting. So one of the first assignments that we did in the class was we were we were given data that was collected by some of the Nazi scientists where it was it was data about hypothermia. So they they purposefully put Jewish people in cold water and timed how long it took them to die from hypothermia. And obviously that is a horrendous, terrible, cruel thing to do. But that data has been used by scientists for the U.S. military and has helped to protect other people from dying from hypothermia. And so the question in our first assignment was, should we use this data, given that we know how it was collected and that it was collected in such an unethical way? Is this data that should be used, even though it has been useful? Can we ethically use it? And I got so mad at that guy, Kurtzman, who brought up that question about, oh, you know, aren't you saying that the the ends justify the means in terms of like the scientific community when it comes to these historical experiments where terrible methods, terrible unethical methods were used, but something useful came out of it. And the reason I got so mad was because One of the experiments that she talks about was the Tuskegee syphilis study, which occurred in Alabama in the 1930s, where they recruited about 600 African-American men to participate in a study without telling them what was happening. 400 of them-ish had syphilis, 200 of them did not, and the purpose of the experiment was to study how syphilis developed in specifically African-American people because racism, these doctors thought that African-American people were more likely to contract syphilis, that syphilis developed differently in African-American people versus white people. And they offered no actual treatments to these men, even after penicillin was discovered when they could have cured these men of syphilis. They even actively stopped men who enlisted in the military and were offered penicillin as a treatment for their syphilis, they actively stopped those men from receiving treatment. So just a monstrous, horrendous study in the history of the United States. And what makes that 
even more awful. Like, I'm not even trying to say, like, there could be an excuse for it. But Kurtzman pops up and he tries to give this whole, oh, ends justify the means things. This Tuskegee study didn't even yield any type of useful data because the structure of the study was so poor. They didn't really not treat the men that they supposedly weren't going to treat because they wanted to see how syphilis developed and when was the best time to treat syphilis. Like they didn't control their experimental group very well. They had people in their control group who were not infected with syphilis become infected. And so then they just moved them to the experimental group. Like it was a poorly designed study. It yielded no viable data. And yet it was allowed to continue for 40 years and led to the deaths of of so many people, as well as the infection of their partners and their children. And like, it just made me so mad, Chris, (laughs) to hear Kurtzman try to pop up and be like, well, aren't you saying that the ends justify the means? Like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I included the example about the hypothermia studies at the beginning of my rant that is still going on. I apologize. Because at least in that case, there are some useful ends that came out of that data. Again, I'm not trying to say that that justifies the actions of the scientists who perform that experimentation, but there are actual ends you can point to and say, this was useful to humankind. When it comes to the Tuskegee syphilis study, the ends were nothing. So the means were cruelty and the end was suffering. Like that was the only thing that resulted out of this study. So I had a lot of feelings when I was listening to Delphine in this episode. I know that was a lot, but I I had a lot of emotions. Fair. I actually had not heard of Werner von Braun. Had you? I don't remember. It's possible. I don't recall exactly, though. I do feel like his inclusion was a reminder of the fact that several of the scientists who did horrible things because they were working under Hitler's regime, got moved over to the United States. And then basically, we didn't want to waste their talent. So they were put to use in different aspects of the scientific community in the United States. And it's it feels like a struggle, an ethical struggle for me, because while we did have like the Nuremberg trials, and, and people were made to answer for horrors of the the Holocaust, at least as much as was able. Joseph Mengele escaped and and hid in South America and, and never was put on trial, but people were tried and convicted for crimes. So there was at least some sort of reckoning after the Holocaust. But we still had people like Werner von Braun, who came over to the United States and were basically put to use because they were talented people. Like, how does that sit with us ethically that he participated in research that was harmful to so many people, but we kind of let him have the rest of his life be pretty cushy because he was a brilliant person and was useful to the United States? You know, how do we feel about the fact that even though the person who revealed the horrors of the Tuskegee syphilis study, that led to a lot of change in the United States when it comes to consent to participating in studies from the discovery of those atrocities. We had the foundations of institutional review boards that had to approve the design of studies that involved human subjects. Like Things did come from the Tuskegee syphilis study being what it was, but like 
you know, the people who participated in that, they never really saw any true consequences for their actions. Makes me mad, Chris. As it should. As it should. That's probably putting it lightly. And I just I have a lot of feelings about it. But I know I'm probably not effectively saying what I want to say. So I'll just end my rant here. Yeah, it's one of those, like all of these horrible, horrible historical injustices. It's, I don't know, it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to think about. And then also, there are, you know, in, in this whole ethical conversation, it's sort of like, we can't just dismiss everything either, because like, there, there are things that happened because of these that, you know, is it then unethical to completely ignore them because there is information that is actionable? Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was talking about mm-hmm. with that data that collected by Nazi scientists. They did actually collect some useful data. So is that then an ethical misstep to ignore that data, even though it could be useful in helping people or saving people's lives? It's It's just a very yucky, difficult situation. Exactly. I am very curious, though, about that reference to the micro drones that collect ambient DNA. Mm -hmm. Because there's this idea that they're just collecting DNA on potentially anybody in Toronto or, or Canada, maybe. And then what do they do with that data? Well, wasn't one of the files that... Was it the grit guy had a file on Sturgis? Sturgis, thank you. Uh, wasn't one of the files that they found of his about microdrones? Mm-hmm. And about injectables, I believe, microdrones that could inject people. That's right. It's interesting because there has been this from sort of a criminal justice perspective. I, I took a I took a class on biomedical criminalistics. My my schooling's coming in handy in this episode. Show off. <laughs> In my biomedical criminalistics class, there was a discussion about the the ethics of collecting DNA and keeping DNA on file, especially if it's DNA of people who turn out not to match whatever sample you're trying to compare to, and like how long we should hold on to that DNA, if it should stay in a database forever, if it should be scrubbed after a certain amount of time. And there's also been questions about oh, what about the idea of, oh, we just collect everybody's DNA? You know, maybe that will help in the future to solve crimes more easily. But the thing that becomes, I guess it's not really an ethical thing. It's it's also a practical thing. A very small percentage of the population commits those really awful crimes. And so this idea of like, oh, we'll just collect everybody's DNA. We'll collect 100% DNA just for the purposes of catching the you know, 5% of the population that do these horrible things. Why is that a practical solution to for like, for like criminal justice reasons? So I, I don't know, I just I, I got really interested about why are they collecting this ambient DNA? Like, what are they doing with it? Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, does that also somehow tie into this, whatever it was they thought they were doing with like Project Lita and Castor and all those things? Like, is it? Is it all somehow connected? But also, who knows? I don't know where I was going with that. Just we have a lot of questions about what their what their intentions are with all of these things. But yes, I mean, you talking about collecting just everybody's DNA made me think about getting thumbprinted at the DMV and that sort of thing. 
Just throwing it out there. Well, and we also, if you're thinking about DNA from a criminal justice standpoint, there's a lot of ways to think about DNA. But from that standpoint, finding somebody's DNA at a crime scene isn't necessarily a slam dunk that they committed the crime. So just having more access to more people's DNA, is that just going to make it more likely that we might convict innocent people of a crime because they happen to be present at that place shortly before or after a crime occurred. And of course, all of this is especially ironic during this episode of Orphan Black, the next chapter, in which Kasima, who has the DNA of the person that they thought actually did it, <laughs> was at right. the at the crime scene at the same time as somebody else with her exact same DNA. <laughs> <laughs> but also, neither one of them is the one who actually committed the murder, so... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. See? Two people, same DNA. DNA at the crime scene doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Does not mean anything that they had anything to do with that man's death. There was a more lighthearted section of this particular piece of the episode where Cosima was and Delphine were talking about the raccoons, the really smart raccoons that learned how to open the raccoon-proof trash cans. And that is a, totally a real thing. You can go, if you Google, like, raccoon-proof trash cans Toronto, you can find a bunch of articles about the raccoons who got really smart and could open the raccoon-proof trash cans that they tried using in Toronto. I mean, it makes sense to me. Just FYI, because I love raccoons. I know they can be nuisances, but I love raccoons. I think they're adorable. They are pretty and their cute. little paws with their little hands. I was going to say, they're little hand-like paws. Which are somewhere in between really creepy and really cute. <laughs> right? They're they're kind of in an uncanny valley territory where that's almost like a human hand, which is a little creepy. But they're so cute. My wife and I used to feed feral cats at a college campus nearby. And we had these little shelters for the food that would keep the food dry if it rained. And the raccoons, because they... They're just built differently than cats. They learned how to tip the little shelters on their sides, basically, so that they could reach in and grab the food to eat. I believe it. We also found a baby possum in one of those little food shelters once, and it was adorable. It was tiny. It, like, reared back and kind of went at us. And was, we we're like, oh, you're so fierce. You're so fierce. <laughs> So, speaking of Delphine, as we had been, <sighs> I I had to stop myself from bursting into laughter when Cosima was being questioned by Jay, when Jay suggests to Cosima that her handlers or whoever told her to date Delphine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, how the turntable. Indeed. <laughs> Like, I was a little surprised that Cosima just didn't, didn't, you know, explode into a series of scoffs. <laughs> like, OJ, if only you knew. <laughs> and like, don't get me wrong, I still like Jay. Jay is trying to do her job, and she's trying to piece together the weird bits of information that she has. But rude, Jay. Those were some rude questions you were asking about... 
Delphine's sexuality. How did she know so much about Delphine's dating past? This is a very good question. Although she made it sound like Delphine was like fairly high profile, like high society or some such. So like maybe there was a page six equivalent. I don't know. But it sounded like Jay was really trying to date Delphine, but <laughs> Delphine was like, oh, oh, bisexuality, I have never considered this for myself. Like, like, <laughs> how did she know? <laughs> I don't know. Like, does Delphine have a blog out there somewhere? Right? <laughs> she's, give, she's giving interviews like, oh, the social biases, they, they codify attraction. This is contrary to the biological facts. You know? <laughs> Dear internet, I kissed a girl today. (laughs) I think I might have liked it. (laughs) And like the Kurtzman guy from the Department of Defense, he also knew a ton about Kasima's past. I'm like, how did he know about revival? If Kasima's trying to be all hush-hush about her past with Dyad, you wouldn't think she'd be going around being like, oh yeah, I lived on this island that was just really a longevity experiment? Like, how did he know so much, Chris? I mean, were there were there like travel records or something? I don't know. I don't know. But it does feel like Delphine and Cosima might have been keeping some indiscreet blogs over the years. Yeah, maybe they started a podcast. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> And yet, Cosima won't put her picture on the University of Toronto adjunct page. Okay. (laughs) So it took me to the second time listening to connect the dots between the the Greg in the first scene with Delphine to the Greg in the scene that comes and gets Cosima. So I'm guessing, you know, this implies he might have showed up because of Eloise Thibault. Maybe. Maybe. So I'm wondering, like, was that something that Delphine asked Eloise to do, to, like, intervene? Is Greg just sort of acting out on his own? Because he doesn't seem to really like Delphine from that first scene. Or did Delphine, like, ask Eloise to do that? Or is it some other option of, like, they are acting on their own and maybe he's the one that's got all that information about Delphine and gave it to Jay? I don't know. Maybe he was trying to date Delphine. (laughs) I would prefer to think that Jay was trying to date Delphine and she shot her down, but maybe it was Kurtzman. (laughs) Maybe everybody just wants to date Delphine. I mean, who could blame them? Or possibly Stephanie's projecting. (laughs) (laughs) You're married, Stephanie. I know. (laughs) I know. Also, Delphine Cormier is not a real person. I know this, too. What? (laughs) But, oh, I actually meant to say earlier, but we're talking about Delphine again, because that's just how I roll. Uh Uh-huh. I know this about you. Of all the characters, apart from the clones, I really feel like Tatiana Maslany shines as Delphine. I feel like you've maybe mentioned this before, but... You're right. I mean, she's she's got the speech patterns, the like her tone is perfect. Maybe not perfect, but it's really good. <laughs> of all the characters, I as I hear Tatiana Maslany voicing Delphine's dialogue, I picture Delphine. All the other ones, I'm still kind of like picturing Tatiana Maslany cuz I mean, I'm not saying she's doing a bad job at doing Art's voice, but 
just her voice is very different <laughs> from Kevin Hancher. I mean, so. I think that is a large part of this is just like voice quality wise. She is much closer to Delphine than, let's say, Art. <laughs> yeah. But when it comes to Delphine, like, I truly picture Delphine when she's talking. She just really nails the vocal quality in the speech pattern. I'm sure her accent, her French accent, isn't as good as Evelyn Brochu's since she doesn't, I don't think anyway, speak French fluently. But she still really evokes Delphine with her performance. And I'm very impressed. It's often one of those like, yes, that is exactly how Evelyn Brochu would have said that. <laughs> that is That is exactly how she would have delivered that line. Good job, Tat. But poor Cosima in this arrest scene, which it kind of bums me out. We didn't really get Cosima's point of view on this. We just had Jay's point of view so far on what's happening in this room. So why do you think Cosima makes that decision at the end when, you know, Kurtzman is kind of hauling her out of the room to kind of trust Jay a little bit and say, check with Art Bell. He'll vouch for me. Do you have any thoughts on, like, maybe why she made that decision? I mean, kind of all I've got is one of those, I think Jay seemed surprised that the other guys were, like, hauling her out. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those, a quick assessment of, like, what's your best option here? <laughs> Jay didn't seem to be with those guys, and those guys seemed shadier than Jay. <laughs> so I, I suspect that's sort of what's happening there like the the best of the bad options because art definitely seems upset about the idea of the department of defense taking casimo away so i'm i'm guessing casimo had a similar thought like oh no this this situation i was in was bad but this seems worse mm -hmm. so maybe we could try to stick with the bad situation that would be great what i'm trying to remember if art had already mentioned jay to Clone Club. He did, right? I mean, he, he did he, as yes. part of the um, group call, right? Yeah, he did. So I'm sure that also carried weight. Like Jay, at least she knew was in contact with Art, and that Art was like, she seems like she's at least like a good cop doing her job. <laughs> like, still don't trust her, but <laughs> and poor Art, man. Jay makes that comment about how Art just seemed very sad. I was like, oh, Art. I know. He's trying his best. He's got a lot of involvement with these clones. We talked about previously how we weren't sure if we could truly say we'd had a clone swap yet because Vivi didn't really purposely try to pretend to be the clones. She just kind of got mistaken for the other clones. But in this episode, I feel like we had an actual clone swap attempt. Do you think that's fair? It is. It is completely fair. Uh, once there is active disguise seeking <laughs> and like active contact with other people posing as that clone, that is definitely a clone swap. I kind of facepalmed when there was that reference to Vivi stuffing a mop in her hat to try to simulate Cosima's hair. Oh, my. <laughs> yes, I also had a similar reaction that I was just like, you know, she's probably just going for, like, volume, but still. Yeah. But still, mm -hmm. the, the images that that uh, provokes. <laughs> I did, however, enjoy Vivi talking about how in the mirror she practiced looking somehow curious at everyone <laughs> at everything <laughs> i i heard that and i was just kind of like yeah <laughs> that sounds about right now that you mention it 
But I am surprised she was brave enough to think she could try to fool Sarah. Like, if I had been in her shoes, I would have just tried to hide. The fact that she was, yeah, let's go try to talk to this person who knows this person I'm trying to pretend to be well. It's one thing to pretend to be somebody to a neighbor. Exactly. This is, I I had exactly the same thought. I was just kind of like, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? It does not seem to be a smart move. Because, yes, a, a casual, maybe even a friendly acquaintance, sure, still probably not a great idea, but hey, <laughs> you're taking your chances. But, like, somebody who is clearly a a close family member, they're family. <laughs> and and Vivi, they're you, but they're not that you. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. she had mentioned how... She could tell the difference between herself and Kasima. Kasima's older. Kasima doesn't have a broken nose. So it's like she knows the limitations of her resemblance. And yet she chose to go try to fool Sarah. And of course Sarah knew because Sarah's the best. I kept thinking, is she is she just hopeful that Sarah's eyesight's really bad? <laughs> like maybe they all need to wear glasses, but they're too vain to do it. Kasima's the <laughs> only one who will actually wear them. <laughs> She did mention, yes, Kasima's terrible eyesight when she put the glasses in, but her glasses on, but but no, it makes no sense that she thought Mm-mm. she could fool Sarah. I mean, granted she doesn't know Sarah, and it, this is the other thing too, right? Like of all of the clones, Sarah, who has pretty consistently been the most observant about such things, I would think, right? Right, and now we know continues to be very paranoid about this type of thing. Because this kind of thing keeps happening. (laughs) Right. Like, she was the worst clone to try to fool. Like, even Allison might not have looked as hard, but Sarah, like, because Sarah's going to, Sarah's going to scrutinize. It's what Sarah does. So when do you think she knew? Do you think she knew immediately? Or do you think there was a particular point where she was like, something's not right? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking pretty immediately. I was wondering if it was the because Sarah's talking about Kira and how Kira's not telling her something or something like that. And then Vivi says something to the effect of like, well, did you tell your mother everything when you were that age? And it co- and I think the description is something like Sarah stopped short and she frowned. I'm like, was that it? Because that was, would have been maybe a weird thing for Kasima to say to Sarah, knowing that Sarah grew up with Mrs. S rather than like a mother mother. Not that Mrs. S wasn't her mother. Mm-hmm. But she probably would have said Mrs. S. Yeah. But when I heard the way Vivi phrased that question or that statement, I just felt like, oh, is Sarah going to know? Cause, or going to ask about her phrasing of that? Because it feels like not the way that Kasima would have asked that question. Yes. Definitely a misstep on Vivi's part. Yeah. I'm sure it's one of those, if Sarah hadn't been paying attention before that, at that point, for sure, Sarah was like on red alert mentally. Then she was threatening her, and I was so happy. (laughs) (laughs) It is like, it's classic Sarah. It just made me really happy to have her be there in person. It's true. I think it's one of those things, because we've only gotten bits and pieces of her always, like, through a call or something up until this point. Like, it's Sarah, but it didn't feel quite the same. I mean, time has passed. Um, She seems... Slightly more settled down. She's become like a helicopter parent, which is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) 
But this, yes, this is like classic Sarah. <laughs> and then she and Delphine are getting to like arguments about how to best handle situations. Like, oh yes, we're back in, we're back in it, guys. <laughs> classic OB content. Even though I was relieved and like excited when Sarah revealed that she knew Vivi was not Cosima. Like that situation just kept getting worse. <laughs> it just got, it's like first, Vivi's trying to pretend she's Cosima. Then, you know, Sarah and Vivi are fighting. Then Vivi's like tied to a chair and Delphine and Sarah are holding a CIA agent hostage. And then there's all of these reporters trying to get into their house and finding a woman tied up in, in their house. Like they revealed that Cosima and Delphine's house was so fancy. How did they not have a camera doorbell? Like <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, there are the security concerns about the camera doorbells. Yeah, I did think of that, too. Like, <laughs> you and I are so nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a whole thing. Like, law enforcement officials can access those those feeds, essentially. So they're paranoid enough that they might not want that. That part makes sense to me. But But still, you'd think they'd have, like, a wired camera or something over the porch. Exactly. Or, like, a peephole. <laughs> right? <laughs> Delphine, did you look out the peephole? <laughs> I love you, Delphine, but short-sighted on your part. And her reaction there, where she was willing to open the door because it might be related to Kasima being arrested, makes me think that she maybe doesn't know about Kasima being moved to DOD custody. Mm -hmm. Therefore, maybe not something that Delphine asked Eloise Thibault to do for her. Good call. Good call. But uh, Charlotte has just landed everybody in a whole lot of mess, it feels like. It's true. It's true. It's one of those, I am sympathetic to her doing what she did, but <laughs> you watch The Good Place, right? I've seen some of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. Okay. Are you familiar with Jason Mendoza and his love of uh, Molotov cocktails? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Because he has a line, something about throwing a Molotov cocktail, and then you've got a whole new problem. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah. I don't know that I'm on Charlotte's side in this decision, mainly because it's her making this decision for all of the Lita clones. Mm -hmm. It's not – it doesn't just affect her. Well, not even just all of the Lita clones, but there are the Gemini ones now, too. Right. So this is her making a decision for all of the clones, and she did not – consult anybody before making this decision. And so even though I understand why she thinks this is the best route for it, because, you know, one of her beloved aunts is in hot water with the police, but at the same time, it's like they have handled these types of situations before. I was say, this is far from the first time. Yeah, so give it some time, Charlotte. I also do wonder if she would have made the same decision if she weren't a little bit feverish and out of it because of the virus that she's infected with. That's a good point. I do feel like this is maybe, as much as anything, an excuse to do the thing that she already wanted to do. Yeah, for sure. So Kira and Charlotte are also nerds. They're code phrases <laughs> that they used to communicate that they were ready to reveal Clone Club to the world. 
They came from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And this is not our first Frankenstein reference in Orphan Black. If you'll think back to season two in episode 209, which is called Things Which Have Never Yet Been Done. Such a weird title. Henrik Johansson in that episode is telling a little story to his children, and it is a slightly altered version of Frankenstein that he is telling his his children. So this is another Frankenstein reference. The The quote that they use in this episode is, I do know that for the sympathy of one living being, I would make peace with all. I have love in me the likes of which you can scarcely imagine, and rage the likes of which you would not believe. If I cannot satisfy the one, I will indulge the other. So I don't know about you, but in in my college courses, maybe it was college and high school combined, I don't remember, I was assigned Frankenstein to read three separate times. <laughs> I only had to read it once. Hmm. Three separate times, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful book. It's 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 great, but that does seem excessive. Yes. I, I mean, I wasn't complaining. It's pretty great, but three times. <laughs> <laughs> but Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a very apropos literary illusion for Orphan Black to make. It's very much about the humanity and the worth of the subjects of scientific experiments. And it's, you can understand why they would allude to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein here, especially why they alluded back in season two with, with Henrik kind of talking about this monster created by the scientist and Helena's the monster and he, and the, he is the scientist. But it is also broadly applicable to the clones as a whole, not just Helena in particular. So should we be worried about Allison since she, for some reason, came into this room with the sick clones too? Or or is it just because Charlotte touched them that she got infected? But I, it just didn't seem wise to have Allison be in the same room. Yeah, I don't know. That's one of those things like, what what was Allison's PPE situation? <laughs> That's true. Is my question. <laughs> well, they were holding food, which probably they should not have had in that room, just to be fair. But yeah, mm -hmm. it did not address her PPE situation. That's a good question. Because <laughs> that was the problem with Charlotte, was like, Charlotte went in and then immediately took it all off like a dummy. Like a dummy. <laughs> uh, you dope, Charlotte. I like you, but that was a dope thing to do. Those impulsive clones. Gets them in trouble. I'm feeling better and better about Arun, though. He he seems like he might actually be an okay person, like an ally, maybe, maybe. Mm -hmm. Again, with the the qualifier that like it's Orphan Black, and who knows? And who knows? But so far, so good, I would say. And Charlotte's eavesdropping is clearly pointing at this guy Davis as being the person who is causing trouble because. Jay tells she tells Kasima that Davis told her about being that she's actually Vivi Valdez. So he clearly was the one who contacted the RCMP and gave them Vivi's name rather than Arun. And um clearly does not like clones, so we don't like him. Yeah, I think the introduction of Davis does a lot also to clear Arun's name. Right. Yeah. Because there were these things where it's like, could it have been Arun? But now it seems pretty clear that it was not Arun who did this. Though I don't think we can say Davis was the person who killed Sturgis. I think, though, it's likely he could have orchestrated that. That sounds fair. 
And it's not just me, right? Davis is clearly a allusion to the cigarette smoking man from the X-Files. You mean because he was played by William B. Davis? Because he was played by William B. Davis, and he's described as, you know... Smelling of cigarettes. Smelling of cigarettes and kind of being like the shady boss type guy, right? Like, it's it's got to be a nod to the cigarette smoking man. I will, I will buy that, sure. Hey, don't make it sound like it's so out of the blue, right? That's, that's reasonable. I'm not. Okay. I'm not making it sound like it's out of the blue. Okay. I'm, I'm saying I, I hadn't thought about it, but now that you bring it up, you make a persuasive point. I thought about it when he, she mentioned that he kind of smoked of, smoked of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> he smelled of cigarettes, but then when I remembered, wait, the actor who played the cigarette smoking man was named William B. Davis. It's gotta be an allusion to the cigarette smoking man. Who I met once. He was very nice. Did he smell of cigarettes? He did not. He did not. Good. But he was wearing like a full wool suit in Texas in summer. So I was like, dude, that's brave. pretty hardcore. That's brave. But I think also contributing to your your thought here that he does evoke cigarette smoking man, there is also the fact that we sort of only get like a hint of him and Charlotte can't really see him. So he's just sort of like a disembodied voice. So yes. I mean, I think it's sort of a while before uh, Cigarette Smoking Man steps out from the shadows in the X-Files. That actually might not be correct, but that is that is the impression that I have. <laughs> he definitely was shadowy. Like, you couldn't really get a full sense of who he was for his first several appearances. This is not particularly related to anything, but I did have a thought when I was listening to the episode where Charlotte notes that there was the sound of like bottles clinking inside of Allison's purse. I was like, oh no. But then she's like, I got ginseng and turmeric. And <laughs> it's like, oh, Allison's trying to come in with the natural cures. Look at her. I did also have that moment of like the fear. It's like, oh no, did, did Allison fall back into old bad habits? But, but you're right. It is. It is kind of sweet that she's just she's trying to help. Charlotte also had that like thought earlier on in the episode where she was wondering, you know, if if like Clone Club, all of all of them had grown up knowing they would clone, they were clones. Like, would would Sarah trust more? Would Cosima be able to finish things? Would Allison be less Allison? <laughs> <laughs> gotta love Allison. I gotta say though, I feel like. Hearing Tatiana Maslany play Allison in this context, I feel like you really do need to see Allison for Allison to feel like a fully embodied person. I think with just her voice alone, she borders into caricature really easily. You're right. I mean, I think both Allison and Helena are so much about the posture. Yeah. Just like the way they carry themselves plays such a huge part in who they are as people fictional though they may be (laughs) yeah there's a lot that is that is unspoken about their characters to a greater extent i think than some of the other lita clones if you have any thoughts about this episode or any of the other episodes of Orphan Black, the next chapter, you can email us at feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com. We are also on Twitter at TIE Podcast. 
Tatiana is Everyone is part of the Ask Genre TV family of podcasts. To find our other podcasts about Lost Girl and Killjoys, visit our website, askgenretv.com. That's A-S-K, genretv.com. And in this episode, Delphine's Indiscreet Society blog was played by Tatiana Mazzani. Thanks for listening. Can I tell you a lab story, Chris? Yes. Did you hear about the snake that was in the lab? No. Okay, so there was a corn snake in the lab. When was this? Last week or week before last? I guess it was last week. And apparently somebody in the molecular department had seen it in the hallway, but it snaked its way under one of the cupboards in the break room. And so... Uh, the lab manager was, was like, I'm going to call facilities and get them to to try to come, you know, remove it from the building. But apparently they were unable to do it. So on Saturday, suddenly one of the accessioners came in and was was like, um, this guy was in the hall. Apparently somebody <laughs> popped their head and was like, there's a snake in the hall. Could someone come help? And one of the accessioners who has a pet lizard, he went and scooped up the snake and he took the snake home with him. And now the snake is his pet. <laughs> That is an excellent conclusion to that story. He was going to give it back to, or he was going to give it to like the pet store where he gets supplies from his, for his lizard. Because I, when he brought it in, I asked him like, oh, are you going to release it outside? And he said, well, it's not a native species. So technically that's illegal. I'm like, I love you that you know that that's not a native species to Texas. (laughs) So he took it home and his niece really liked him. So he, he kept the snake. Its name is Snakey. That's adorable. I love this whole story. Aside from the fact that there was a snake in the lab. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very cute little corn snake. Though corn snakes, they're very slender, but they're long. So they can be a little, uh, oh my gosh, that's a snake.